everyone. Uh, we'll start the room in a few minutes. So uh, thank you for coming. Um, thank you, everyone. Hi everyone. Um, thank you so much for coming. We'll I opened the room a little bit early, uh, but if you want to come up and chat or ask questions, um, please feel free to either raise your hand or uh, use the room chat. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Hi everyone, hey B, hey David. Thank you so much for being here. This will be really exciting. I'm very excited about this topic. So the whole team will be actually coming today. Um, so, um, so it will be Dr. Robert Berman, Dr. Tristan Collins and Dr. Daniel uh, Percy will be here um, so the whole team will be here to present this work hi jamie how are you today hello everybody so yeah i put the title so like the amount of um words we can use in the title is very limited I could only put in Dr. Percy's name, but um, yeah, the the whole team will be coming, so this will be really uh, interesting. So um, the, the Daniel Person, he's the um, associate professor at the Division of Algebra and Geometry, Department of Mathematical Sciences at Kalmas University of Technology in Sweden. And um, Dr. Robert Berman, he's a professor of mathematical sciences also at Colmert in Sweden. And then Tristan uh, Collins, he's at the Department of Mathematics at MIT um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So, yeah, I opened the room a little bit earlier because they are new to Clubhouse. And um, so I want to give them a little bit of time. They made their account, but just, you know, if there's any technical issues that, that we can figure it out before. And David, yeah, interesting question. You should come up to the stage and ask your question to the guest speakers. They will present their work, but um, after that, you can ask questions or probably during the time. Hi, how are you? Are you interested in physics or did you study physics? Hey, Katrina. Morning, everyone. Well, uh, I'm really a fan of uh, Nassim's work. 
my background studies uh, were culinary arts, where I found the chemistry as a main bridge to link what the, the physics of the food means for the nutrition and uh, development of uh, health uh, habits. And yes, I found Nassim Hamid uh, around 10 years ago on his uh, website. He was offering his uh, unified physics course for free. So um, now uh, it's still online. You, you can access it. I find it very interesting. But uh, I would like to, to discuss how this uh, holofractal perspective, uh, what is based on the Planck sphere, uh, means for the unification of uh, what we entangle as new dynamics, mostly for quantum dynamics and quantum computing. Yeah, that's that's so interesting that you're in the culinary arts and you're interested, like you learned physics. That's uh, that's very impressive. Um, yeah, meet uh, Dr. Daniel Pearson. Am I saying your name right? Is it Pearson or Person? I'm sorry. I'm really dumb. So uh, the microphone button to unmute is all the... Yeah, no, now I'm <laughs> unmuted. Yes, hi, nice to meet you. Uh, yes, so I mean, you can just call me Daniel. Otherwise, uh, otherwise we, I usually say person in English. Person. Person, okay, great, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll call you Daniel, but for the introduction. Yeah, that's uh, fine. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for yes. coming. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. It took some time to find a, a suitable date and time where we could all join, but uh, yeah. Yeah, but it all worked out and um, it's worth it. So we have the whole group here. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, Robert is joining in a few minutes. Tristan will be a little bit late, so he will come in maybe half an hour. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Um, yeah. He knows the study, so he doesn't need the introduction. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, that's, that's he can, true. He can take care of all the questions for you. Guys. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So when he comes, we will just shut off and <laughs> and leave. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what time is it in Sweden? It's six hours later, right? It's uh, five o'clock now in the afternoon. Okay. It's been a very long time that I've been to Sweden. I was a teenager. I was ah, in Denmark so, so... and Sweden and Norway. So where, were you, where did you go in Sweden? Uh, we went, um, we went, so it was, the, uh, as a teenager, I was, and as a kid, I was at the, the Scouts, not Boy Scouts, in Europe, it's just for girls and boys, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. so we traveled around, so we went to different islands, um, and then we went, so we traveled around a little bit between Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's uh, there are many beautiful islands outside of this coast here. Yeah. And then we went to Legoland. London. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go to Legoland, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Hi, hi, Robert. How are you? Thank um, you so much um, for. 
joining us, Doctor. It's really exciting to hear from you. I'm, I'm Jamie, and I'll be listening to your presentation as well. Very exciting stuff. I hope I can follow it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Um, Robert, if you would like to unmute to speak, uh, it's all the way on the bottom right hand. There's a little microphone button. And if you click on it, we, we can we can hear you. Yes. So, uh, so Robert doesn't seem to be on the stage, uh, or oh, I see him on the stage. Okay, I don't. Okay, so but just maybe on, on my side. I, I'm not seeing him. I'm seeing uh, just you and Jamie and David on the stage and me. Yeah. But uh, so he's for you. He's in the audience. I, I'm not seeing him at all. Oh, maybe my app is glitching. Uh, Jamie, can you see Robert? I'm seeing Robert here muted. Okay, okay. Okay. Oh, Marco Pettini joined. Do you know Marco Pettini by any chance in Italy? He was a guest speaker. He talked about long distance um, um, molecular interaction forces. Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, I hope he comes to the stage. He's a really wonderful physicist from Italy. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, we, yeah. I want to test if Robert can hear us. So, let me write him a message. Um, because that would be a picture ah. Hi, I found the microphone. You hear me now? Oh, yes. No, <laughs> okay, it's my first time on Clubhouse. Took some time to find the mic. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's it's my second time, so I'm much more experienced. Yeah, yeah, I will. So I will. I I I I let you take the lead, Daniel. <laughs> Lording your experience over your colleagues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you just you just press the microphone and then you just sit back and listen to the other people speaking. It's very nice. Yeah. It's so no yeah, video, and how? No need to brush your hair, take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so how does it work? Anybody can ask a question in just uh, on the fly, or how does it work? So um, yeah, it depends on you. So uh, usually people have to raise their hand when they are still in the audience. If they are here, um, usually people flash their microphone. So to not like interrupt the speaker, mm -hmm. they will usually their music like to, and then to like a signal that they would like to ask something, they would like uh, flash. The... Mm -hmm. people... And and who who is. Who will let them in, so to speak? Oh yeah, Jamie and I. We will do this. You see the screen, okay, the little symbol. Good. That means like that we are moderating, so we will see okay. who good. will ask good. questions. And then good. we have the room chat, um, so people can ask questions there um, okay. too. So I'll monitor it and then read them if there are questions. So good. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think we can we can start. Um, and so I was a little bit distracted to, um, uh, Jamie, can you share the room like, uh, on, on Clubhouse? 
Yeah. Sure thing. Do it right now. I just I was distracted, just chatting and doing that. Okay, cool. So yeah, usually I'll start um, by introducing you, and then if it's okay, Demi would ask you like a more general question about how you became to be a scientist. I think for students, okay. and so it's an okay. interesting. Yeah. yeah okay, cool. And then then you can introduce your work. Great. Okay, so. Welcome everyone to the Science Society. Uh, we have a, a really great um, guest speakers here today um, talking about their very interesting research here. Um, so, and um, we will have basically the team here um, presenting the work and discussing. So it's a great honor. Um, and let me tell you a little bit of background information. So uh, Dr. Daniel Kirsten, he's associate professor at the Division of Algebra and Geometry in the Department of Mathematical Science at um, Kalmar's University of Technology in Sweden. And um, he's a theoretical physicist working on a wide range of topics in string theory, gravity and gauge theory and often focusing on problems which lie in the borderline between physics and mathematics. And um, yeah, and uh, Dr. Robert Berman, he's a professor in mathematical sciences, also at Colmer. And um, he um, is a um, professor since uh, 2013. And uh, before that, he did his postdoctoral uh, research uh, through Marie Curie and her European Fellowship at the Institute of Fourier, Grenoble, France. Um, and um, he, he was also at the um, John Hopkins University. And no. um, oh, is that wrong? John Hopkins yeah, University? well, I, uh, yeah, USA? just okay. not, not really, but. Never mind. Oh, I found it on the website. Really, really, you, you should never trust the web. Don't never trust the web. <laughs> okay, just that you're here to fact check me. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, okay, let's. Uh, and then uh, later on, uh, Dr. Tristan Collins will also join us. He's at the Department of Mathematics at Massachusetts Institute of technology in Cambridge, um, and he's there an assistant professor. And um, yeah, we are very honored to have you here. And if it's okay, Jamie will ask you his questions first. Thank you very much, Katerina. First of all, thank you very, very much for coming, both of you. It's um, I was having some look at your papers, quite exciting. I can tell you've given this problem a lot of weight. Uh, boom, boom. Anyway, um, and my jokes aside, um, first of all, I'd like to ask um, Daniel, if you could go first, please. Can you please tell us what is it that brought you into this field of study and perhaps what got you into science and maybe this topic in particular? Sure. Thank you for the question. A uh, big question to start. Um, so I guess for me, um, I really started out wanting to become an astronomer. Uh, I was really fascinated by, well, science in general, but I loved you know, pictures of galaxies and 
So I wanted to understand uh, the universe. And so I started university basically to become an astronomer. And, and I uh, took more or less uh, a master in astronomy. Uh, but then I gradually shifted to becoming more and more curious as to how things worked at the more fundamental level. So I, I switched and then I took a master in theoretical physics. Um, and I, and I really was intrigued by questions like how, uh, what are the most elementary constituents that build up all matter and uh, what happened at the Big Bang and these kind of questions that were really intriguing to me. Uh, so I decided to pursue a, a PhD. So I, I went to Brussels to do a PhD. And uh, there I started studying uh, basically Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, so I guess we will come back to that, but just very briefly, Einstein's theory is describing the universe in the large scale structures. And um, I was studying what happens to Einstein's equations when you try to probe them in regions where they sort of misbehave. So close to singularities, like what happens in a black hole or the Big Bang, and just zooming in there and try to see what kind of structure is it that the equations have when you focus on this. And it turns out that it reveals a lot of really interesting mathematics. So you get new kind of symmetries. And, and that got me more and more intrigued by this question that if you ask questions about nature or physics, and somehow it leads you into math, you know, whether you want to or not, you are automatically ending up with some really interesting mathematical structures. And so that's kind of what defined my whole career. I, I was so intrigued by this borderline between math and physics, like starting out on one side can get you to new insights on the other side and vice versa. So in the coming years, I did postdocs and so on. I, I kept investigating various aspects of um, of gravity, uh, and I became more and more interested in this question of, of quantum gravity. And I guess this is also something we have to come back to, but I, I spent many years uh, on string theory, which is a candidate for quantum gravity. And uh, once I got back to Sweden, uh, I, well, I came into contact with Robert and you know, he was there as a mathematician and we started talking and we quickly realized that we had some common interests and we started maybe this project something like four or five years ago mm. just some casual discussions that became you know more and more intensified and and that's what eventually yeah led so to this paper so tristan was actually visiting uh, our department as a postdoc at the time yeah so that's, that's how right. we got together that's yeah. right yeah so uh, yeah that was quick i mean we can go into some details later but maybe that's that's uh just for starters. No, that is a great way to begin. It sounds like your trajectory was always going to bring you to, to this kind of point here, that your curiosity started as astronomy and just kept on going. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, like, I like the way you say that. It's, it's kind of funny, you know, when you, when you write applications or where you present <sighs> things, you're always supposed to present it as if there was this clear trajectory and you were always aiming for this. <laughs> of course, in reality, you know, you feel like you're bumping around and you know, eventually it all works out, but it's interesting that the path somehow looks straight when you look at it 
when you look back upon it, but that's not always how it feels along the way. That's why asking these questions have been so fascinating, both for yourself to tell it and for us to hear them, as uh, the background of the speakers here have often been so fascinating. Mm. And yourself, Robert, can you please well, tell us? Yeah, so I went off in a completely different direction, I guess. Uh, really excited about philosophy uh, when I was in high school. So I started studying philosophy, theoretical philosophy, actually. Um, because I was really excited about these big pictures. And, and then I got interested in uh, somehow the philosophy of science um, when, when we were studying philosophy. But then I realized that you couldn't really do that if you didn't know the science. That, that was my impression at least. And, and there were very sort of philosophical uh, discussions about quantum mechanics and so forth. But I, I felt that I really wanted to understand the physics before I started doing any philosophy. Um, so then I actually switched to, to physics. So I started actually at the physics program. But uh, when you study physics, especially at the time, uh, you actually start with mathematics. Um, because that's the language uh, of physics, uh, as Daniel pointed out. Uh, and then I got hooked with mathematics. Uh, so I got really hooked and it really, I guess, developed into an addiction, you might say. <laughs> so, so, you know, but it's, a, to, it's a healthy addiction. Yeah, right? yeah. You start to you start with some, you inject some basic algebra and you get the heavier drugs eventually. <laughs> like uh, calculus. Oh, God yeah, forbid. Yeah, yeah. Then, it, then, then, then there is no turning back. I mean, if you, so, so, so I got really hooked with math and um, uh, so, but I did study some physics uh, uh, at the side, so to speak. So my degree was also in, in, in physics uh, and actually French and literature. But uh, um, so, and then I, yeah, I got really, I mean, I really wanted to continue doing research in mathematics. So I did, uh, I mean, I did a PhD and eventually became a, a professor. So I was I spent one and a half year with my family in France before coming back to Sweden. Uh, and I guess that's when we met Daniel. That was probably when I got back, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I mean, I've always been, I mean, that's why we have so many things to discuss, me and Daniel, is that I'm really, even though I come more from the mathematics side, I mean, I'm really most excited about the interface with, uh, with physics, theoretical physics, really. Um, so that's, yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. And you even came from a bit more of a philosophical background initially and kind of found yourself into maths and everything else. Yeah. 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 So, but I, yeah, I, but it's just that I, I mean, I really like, I mean, I mean, there are, for me, it's just really of what I really enjoy is understanding things in general. Right. So it doesn't really matter if it's philosophy or mathematics or physics, but what I really then liked about mathematics is that you try to understand something and in the, in the beginning it's like a completely dark room but eventually once you see the light you can really describe things extremely precisely uh, and that's what I really appreciated with math that, that things are really I mean you, you can really once you understand you can make it extremely precise which I guess is a bit unique for mathematics. Absolutely what an incredible way to describe it. Um, Thank you very much. And um, let's see, Katerina, is there anything else or? 
thank you so much for this um, great um, yeah, perspective that you shared with us how the path to science and uh, article like this could be <laughs> in this world. So thank you. And uh, yeah, please, uh, please start with your uh, introduction afterwards. Thank you. Yeah, so maybe, I don't know, Robert, maybe I can start just yeah, saying a sure. little something on, uh, so I mean, this this paper that is pinned at the top, I mean, it's quite a technical paper, and I think it makes a lot of sense if we we just try to take, you know, a big step back and, and look at, you know, where this comes from. So what kind of questions are we addressing? And um, now we don't really know what the audience is uh, here, so I'm just going to assume that people don't really know so much about what quantum gravity is. I mean, we, we don't really know what quantum gravity is, so maybe that's fine. Um, so, so, so I've just tried to paint a little bit of a picture. Um, so there is this, uh, you know, strive for understanding what are the fundamental laws of nature. Uh, and that's been ongoing for quite some time. And we now have a very good picture of what's going on. And we certainly know that there are, you know, four, or at least four, but, but that's, uh, we, we know that there are four fundamental laws that are governing, governing uh, all of the universe. That's what we think. We have the same laws of nature here as, you know, in the <clears throat> far distant. And on the large scale structure, we have, as I mentioned, uh, gravity. So the gravitational force is an attractive force that is controlling uh how masses behave how they attract each other so it controls how the earth moves around the sun it controls how galaxies behave the large scale structure it holds galaxy clusters together and so on and so forth but then on the other side we have uh, the microscopic world so we have the world of molecules atoms and as we just you know, probe into smaller and smaller distances, we, we end up with what we call elementary particles. So kind of the, 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 the Lego building blocks of, of the world. And like the atom is composed of a nucleus, and then we have electrons around it. And so the electron is uh, an elementary particle. And we have then the three forces that are controlling this microscopic world. And one of these, which is perhaps the one that is most familiar, is the electromagnetic force. So that's, that's light, that's what we see all around us. And that's what holds the electron to the nucleus, that's the positive and negative charge, and so on, that's the electromagnetic force. And that's a very strong force, like compared to gravity, it's really strong. So just think about holding something in your hand, you know, it, it, you're easily, counteracting the entire weight, the entire, entire pull of the earth on this, you know, if you're holding a ball in your hand, then the electromagnetic forces holding the molecules together in your hand are, are counteracting the pull of the earth on this ball. So the, the force of gravity is very weak compared to the electromagnetic force. But then if you move further into the nucleus, we have protons and neutrons and they themselves are made up of even smaller objects called quarks. 
And then we have what's called the strong nuclear force, and that's holding the, the nucleus together. So that's the, the strong nuclear force that is responsible for holding it together. And then we have the fourth force, which is the weak nuclear force. And that's more of a destructive force. It's, it's the one that is responsible for radioactive decay. Um, so it's, I guess, both the blessing and the curse. And so there we have all of the forces that we know. It's gravity on the one hand, and then on the other, we have these three forces that are working uh, in the microscopic world. Yeah. And in, just in terms of how we describe these, so we describe gravity extremely accurately using Einstein's theory of general relativity. And it's amazing, like the, the reason why we have such accurate GPS positioning and so on, is because Einstein's theory is so accurate in describing uh, the gravitational force. On the other hand, in the microscopic story, we are using quantum field theory, quantum theory to describe how all these particles interact. And these theories work amazingly well on their own you know, where they are supposed to work. So if we want to describe, you know, how, how to have a satellite that is orbiting Earth and so on, we use Einstein's theory. But if you want to understand how particles collide and so on, we need to use quantum theory. So, so yeah, so maybe I should, yeah, maybe we should say something. So about, uh, I mean, and how you get to the quantum. So, so, so maybe I can just mention that, I mean, first, these, the electromagnetic Oops, there's some strain. There's, there's some disturbance. Somebody's I'm sorry, singing. I moved. <laughs> I moved since I'm really okay. sorry. Okay. No, it's a public okay. space. Okay, I go, go on. Yeah, so, so maybe I should say first uh, that originally the electromagnetic field that Daniel described, that describes light and so forth, was really described as a field. So you think of it like a, a field or a wave which goes through space when we send a, I mean, now, for example, when we're communicating over distance, it's an electromagnetic wave going out from my cell phone and reaching, I mean, eventually sort of reaching you somehow. Um, but, and that was, yeah. But then uh, in the last century, people realized that uh, you have to be more precise, that these fields are really part described by particles as well. So this, this is the quantum nature. Quantum comes from something. So, so it's like, this, this, this is this description of an electromagnetic wave sort of a, as a billions of small photons um, flying through space. Uh, and that's the quantum description. It's more precise. It takes into account this particle nature uh, of the force. Right. And, and actually, so as a complement to that, you know, why these are so different is also that you know, Robert is mentioning you have this, uh, you know, all these all these particles that are sort of wave like, but there are these billions of particles that are working coherently to produce uh, this wave. Now, on the other side, if you look at gravity, so the way Einstein described this, he had this unique insight into sort of unifying what people previously thought of different things. So there's this prime example of uh, space and time. So 
you know, before Einstein, people thought of these as separate things. So we are, you know, we are located in a three-dimensional space. So in order to have to, you know, meet someone, you have to decide on an X and a Y and a Z coordinate. And then you have to say that you have to meet at a certain time. Uh, and these are separate things. But Einstein, he said that, you know, we shouldn't talk about space and time. We should talk about space-time. So we are really living in some four-dimensional space-time as one concept, and, and that was the key to his to his uh, whole theory. And and just like Robert was describing this notion of quantum, uh, that also puts the finger on on sort of the difference between these theories, because in Einstein's theory, the universe is sort of some kind of smooth, possibly curved space-time. So you can think of you know the analog of a of a surface like a balloon, or you have some flat, just a flat sheet of paper, or a saddle shape, or something else. So that's really what Einstein's theory is producing. It's producing the shape of the space time around us. Daniel, just yep. let me just maybe we should just uh, also mention. I mean, I, I guess you didn't really mention that uh, how that works. So. So the, you should have this picture in mind that, for example, so how, how come that the, the, the Earth attracts the moon? Uh, sort of, okay, so Newton would say that there is a gravitational pull towards, towards, the, uh, towards Earth, and then because of the speed of the moon, it goes around, round, round, circles around. But Einstein actually said that, no, that's not the way it works, or, well, he made it more precise, is that heavy, so it's curves space and even time around it so it curves this this uh, this uh, shape uh, daniel mentioned called space time around it and then the earth is is just like a, a marble that oh it just feels the curvature and just take the closest path in this geometry this curved geometry and we go round round in this curved geometry so yeah yeah right exactly and and if you have this picture, let's say you take this, uh, this uh, kind of classical example of, you know, you have a bed or a sheet or something and you put like a bowling ball or something, it will curve the sheet around it. And whatever is trying to move in a straight line around this heavy object will be, uh, will be sort of falling down into the well created by this heavy object. Um, but then you can also, you can imagine also you know, what happens if you drop a heavy, like a stone in, in water, right? That you will see waves propagating through just symmetrically outwards in the water. And, and Einstein's theory actually predicts that you will have a similar type of effect in space-time. So if you have some, some kind of heavy object, uh, it will create if this object is moving, it will create waves or ripples that moving out in space-time that we're calling gravitational waves. So that's kind of, you know, sort of analogous to the kind of waves that Robert was mentioning in electromagnetic theory. But the difference is that in gravity, we don't really have this analogous particle notion that we have, let's say, the photon. And that's one of the big questions, you know, is there some kind of quantum version of gravity where these gravitational waves are really some kind of 
coherent state of, of particles that are moving. And it's just because you have many of them that this creates this kind of smooth space time that we are describing using Einstein's theory. And the, the question of whether there exists such a quantum version I mean, has many, you know, there are many reasons to, to look for such a thing, but maybe one can just mention that if you're just looking at the universe as a whole, so we know that the universe is you know, expanding. We know that the universe becomes bigger and bigger. And so space-time is stretching out. And we even know now that it's not just expanding, but it's accelerating. Look, maybe we can come back to that. But if you just imagine having something that is expanding and you're wondering, you know, what happened beforehand, so you try to run this movie backwards, well, you naturally end up in a conclusion that it must have been smaller in the past. And, you know, it must have been smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's, that's just a naive way of saying that, you know, if you go far enough back in the past, the entire universe was concentrated in a very small volume. And that means that you must have had tremendous gravitational um, <clears throat> forces, but it's also a very small, tiny volume. So the quantum effects should be extremely high. So there is no way that you could do what we do in our everyday lives of just neglecting, you know, you look at light, we just, we don't really care about the gravitational force if we're interested in how uh, light is working in the lab or in our everyday lives. And the same way, if we build a spaceship and want to travel to Mars, you know, we want to, we want to use how gravity works and not care so much about the electromagnetic interactions. Uh, but if we try to understand the Big Bang, somehow we expect that there should be, you know, a better theory, a more fundamental theory that involves both quantum theory and general relativity, and they should work side by side. And this is a theory that is somehow replacing or is, you know, more fundamental than what we have today. And this is what we call quantum gravity. So that's, that's what people have been looking for for a long time now, what that would, what that kind of theory would be like. Yeah, maybe we should also mention apart from the Big Bang, uh, that there, I mean, another extreme situation one would like to understand are uh, big um, black holes. So uh, there is this amazing thing that I'm, I'm sure everybody is aware of that when sometimes when a, colla uh, when a star collapses, uh, it can really sort of implode in such a way that you have a huge concentration of matter in a very small volume, big similar to, to the Big Bang somehow. Uh, and that will sort of result in an, an extreme curvature around this space. Uh, around this collapsed star so that you have this extreme curvature and it will if you if you see what's go if you try to see what's going on from here from earth for example you will just see a black hole because light it's so heavy that the light which reaches this 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 sort of singularity as it it's called it cannot reach out again so it looks completely black from the outside and then if you want to understand what, I mean, because of the fact that the matter is concentrated in a small volume, if you want to understand what's going on, really describe that physically, you have no choice by, but combining uh, gravity with quantum theory. 
Yeah, right. And and maybe as an analogy, I mean, we have in, in order to leave the Earth, right? We can't just take any old airplane and just try to go to the moon, because as we go further and further up, eventually, you know, the Earth's gravity will just pull the plane back, and that's because the gravitational pull is 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 you know strong enough to hold you down, and in order to counteract that, you need a, a rocket that is sufficiently powerful so that it, it can accelerate beyond the acceleration that is pulling you down. And so a black hole is simply, well, simply, but it's, a, it's a, an event or an object where the gravitational pull is so strong that not even, you know, even if you can travel at the speed of light, it's not sufficient to escape the gravity. And yeah. it's exactly at that threshold when you say that you have a black hole because not even light can escape. Okay. Shall I say something about how, I mean, the, the uh, yeah, the, the sort of approach we are working on to, 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 to sort of describe quantum gravity? Yes. Uh, so, because, so, so Daniel described these two kinds of forces. You have gravity on the one hand, and then the other forces, which are the microscopic forces like electromagnetism and so forth. Uh, and they are actually, so, so, I mean, Gravity is described sort of by in this way as the curvature of space-time, and then there is a rather different uh, so that that's a bit technical. So I will not try to explain the concept of, of a gauge theory. But the important thing is that basically in a gauge theory uh, there is a parameter uh, called the rank. Uh, which for these three forces is one, two, and three. <laughs> That's all you need to know about gauge theory is that there is this parameter, the rank, and for the electromagnetic force it's one, and that's because there is just particle, the electron. Uh, and then for the, you have for the electroweak force, I mean the, 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 the weak uh, nuclear force, and then up to the strong nuclear force, then it's the, this number <laughs> is n equal to three. And the three here is the number of quarks. There are just three quarks. Uh, and you can combine them together and you get the composed particle, which is the proton, for example. So the proton is made of a maximal number of, of quarks. Uh, so that's all you need to know about gauge theory, that there is this number, n. So, and then you look at it and that looks a bit, does nature just, uh, uh, take advantages of one, two, and three. What about four, n equal to four, five, six, one billion? I mean, is there a physics corresponding to 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 those theories? Uh, and and this sort of is really what in, in the nineties uh, an answer to this was provided by Juan Maldacena, uh, which is really the starting point. Uh, um, and and he said. If you take this n to be uh, close to infinity, you take it larger and larger and larger, what will happen is that gravity will emerge. That's basically what he, he discovered. So another way to say this is that, okay, so maybe it's, gravity is not so different of each theories. One, two, and three, and you get three quarks. Uh, but then if you, 
if you sort of look at a similar theory uh, and you take this number larger and larger, it's like you have these sort of virtual, I mean, you can think of these quark-like objects, you get more and more of them. And when you compose them, maybe you really get space-time. That's one way to, to think about it. Uh, what do you think, David? Does, does it make, can we explain it that way? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so, so uh, maybe just before uh, going on, I just noticed that Tristan has appeared. So maybe we should invite him in to present himself. Ah, oh, welcome, Tristan. Yeah, welcome, Tristan. Okay. He wrote me that he needs to... Oh, there, there you go. Okay. Hi, Tristan. Okay, okay, okay. I'm here. Okay, sorry, sorry for uh, delay. <laughs> So glad you can could you, join us. Thank you for can, coming. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So basically, basically, we just started by giving a brief introduction, Tristan, uh, of what we've been doing. So uh, maybe we just continue, and you can, uh, you know, chip in wherever you feel like. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 So I was so Daniel first explained that to I mean this this sort of uh, this. Uh, core theory that we have gravity on one hand, which is the sort of microscopic force and then the microscopic forces. And I said now that there is this technical term gauge theory, which describes the microscopic world. And it goes from one, two and three. That's the three different forces because you have this fundamental parameter n equal one, two, three. Three is the number of quarks. And then there, there was this new development in the 90s by Juan Malacena that Basically, he answered the question, what happens if you take n lar this number larger and larger? Would, what kind of physical theory do you get? You get theory with like billions and billions of quarks. And, and that theory, actually, when, you, when this number n tends to infinity, somehow what you, would, you should see is that gravity emerges. That's one way of describing it in non-technical terms, I think, what he, what he did. Uh, and that's the starting point for our per paper. But... One should say one more thing. So, or actually, more, more <laughs> thing. But why, okay. So one. So, so there is one. Okay. So first you say okay, then we can all go home. I mean, this is all solved, right? <laughs> so, so because well, it's uh, the devil is of course in the details because I mean, there are catches here. So one catch uh, is that uh, is that when you do this you have a gauge theory and, and you try to uh, you see if gravity emerges you do this gauge theory with n equal to four five six and infinitely large and you should see gravity emerges first of all what happens is that gravity actually emerges in a space with an extra dimension so you go even if your original theory was in, in space space time the gravity emerges in a five dimensional space so you get sort of emergence of an extra dimension uh, okay, and that's concept of the holographic principle that we could come back to later. Um, but, but maybe, Robert, this is a good good place to say something about uh, its relation to to black holes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, good. So, so we yeah. have, I mean, in the title here, the, I see that uh, Katharina has written how gravity emerges the holographic principle. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there is a precursor to like this story of Maldacena and so on. In, in some sense, the Maldacena theory that Robert was describing is, is like a very specific realization of what is called the holographic principle. And um, 
maybe the, the simplest setting to explain where this comes from is that um, when you look at black holes, um, you know, there are many things that uh, we don't understand, but, you know, the first thing we explained was, you know, black holes are supposed to be black. Uh, but in turn, it turns out that they're not really expected to be entirely black. And so this was discovered by uh, Stephen Hawking and uh, Bekenstein uh, many years ago. Uh, and they're actually expected to radiate. So this is what is called a Hawking radiation. Um, and it's this sort of surprising effect of trying to use some quantum theory just at the boundary of the black hole. So they were analyzing, you know, what happens if you have a situation where um, a particle, and so in, in, we, we can't really go into this, but what can happen is you can have a particle and it's sort of dual, it's anti-particle with a negative mass. That part with the opposite charge, it can, it can be created and disintegrated in a very short period of time in, in, uh, in empty space. And if this happens just at the boundary of a black hole, an antiparticle could in principle move into the black hole and the particle escapes. And effectively what happens is that it will reduce the mass of the black hole and the particle that escapes will be sort of radiating out. And the expectation is that somehow this radiation contains information about what happens inside the black hole. But uh, they could also calculate the so-called entropy of the black hole, or the fact that it has a temperature. So just like we have, you know, in the room, we have lots of molecules that are moving around, and we are describing them using the macroscopic notion of a temperature rather than just saying, you know, whichever each each molecule is moving in this and that direction with this and that velocity it's kind of inconvenient so we're talking about this temperature and you can talk about the temperature of the black hole because it's radiating so it behaves a lot like a, an ordinary body that is radiating but the surprising thing is that if you have an ordinary matter system the temperature or the entropy is related to the volume like the particles live in some volume but for a black hole, somehow the information about the entropy or the temperature is contained only on the surface of the black hole. So if the black hole is three-dimensional, somehow all this information is just contained on the boundary. And that's exactly the kind of holographic relation that somehow it seems that when you're dealing with quantum gravity, there is some kind of holographic principle that the information contained inside is somehow projected onto the boundary. And there, it's like the opposite of what Robert was saying. You know, imagine if you have, uh, you're at the boundary, then somehow when you want to understand what's going on inside, it is like uh, an extra dimension is emerging. So that's specific for, for black holes. But what Robert was saying is that, you know, people have taken this idea one step further and said, you know, maybe if the entire universe somehow there is a holographic description of the universe. Yeah. So maybe, I, I mean, one way to say it as well is that, is that, I mean, we are, we are, I mean, there are situations that we are familiar with. I, I, I don't know if I can come up with something that we, where we can have two different descriptions of, of the same phenomenon, right? 
So this is, and, and we talk about the notion of duality. It's like we have two different descriptions, uh, uh, but they are dual. They are basically equivalent somehow. And this is, so this is an instance of, of a duality is that you have one description, which is somehow valid horizon. It's like the description, if you would take, uh, uh, if you would be so <laughs> the rocket inside the black, black hole and you would go, you would pass the horizon, but you wouldn't even notice anything special at that point. You would just go on and eventually you would get into trouble when you reach the singularity. But, but, but you would describe physics in, in this sort of in three space dimension of time. That, that's the way you would describe physics. But then from the out, you see this rocket eventually when, when it reaches the horizon, something really weird happens. And, 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 and it looks really weird because the, the lights get distorted, but then eventually, uh, I, mean, you, I mean, you cannot describe what's going on inside uh, the horizon. So your description from the outside would just be a description taking into account the two dimensions living at the boundary of this, uh, of this uh, horizon. So somehow th this would be like two dual descriptions of the same physics, one three-dimensional space, inside the horizon and one from the outside which describes everything in terms of this two-dimensional surface so, so maybe I, I can give my uh, very uh, simplistic um uh, elevator pitch for for this ads cft thing yeah. which has, has nothing to do with physics <laughs> but uh so imagine that the that the universe is a soup can and on the boundary of the soup can there's a label and the label contains some list of ingredients and in the interior of the soup can, there's soup. And so, so ADS-CFT, this kind of uh, holographic principle is saying that if you know the, the information on the, on the outside of the soup can, which is the list of ingredients, then you should be able to reconstruct the soup, which is inside the can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so yeah. maybe we should say there is this technical word ADS-CFT, but another way to say it, just to remember it, is this gauge gravity duality. So uh, in this kind of duality for gravity that Maldacena discovered, uh, it's a duality in the sense, first in the sense that the description of gravity is in terms of a different language, which is a language involved. That's like the ingredients for, it's like the gauge theory that they are the ingredients to form gravity in your picture, Tristan, I guess. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe one should also say that you know, in this language of gauge gravity, I mean, what is really is is is, is a two-way duality. So we've now been focusing, you know, maybe we want to understand something about gravity, like black holes. Then perhaps there is another description that is hopefully simpler in terms of some some gauge theory, some quantum theory, um, where you don't really have gravity, but you have a different setting. But but this kind of uh, duality also goes both ways. So in principle, you can you can uh, look at situations where you have difficult questions in quantum theory or where the quantum theory is strongly coupled, the gauge theory is strongly coupled, as we say. And, and then you can go to the other side. And that's actually where the gravity situation is simpler. And you can try to answer questions um, about the quantum system using gravity instead so so it really goes both ways and you can look at so people have really looked at this 
uh, from different perspectives and, and there is a lot of interest in understanding complicated matter systems uh, from this other perspective using gravity. And I think the picture to have in mind is really, I mean, because it's very confusing that you can, how can one theory in, in for example, two dimension describe a theory in three dimensions, but the, the way to think about it, I think, is that you should visualize this horizon of a black hole and the inside, we, we don't see it from, from the outside, and, but it's really some gravity theory in three space dimensions. But the way we describe it is using gauge theory, which really is localized on the surface. And that's so the gauge theory is in two dimensions, space dimensions, and the gravity is in three dimensions. But there, I mean, so you, there is no contradictions in the sense that, I mean, how can three dimensions be described by two dimensions? It's, I mean, it's like something should be missing. But the, the answer is that, well, we're not describing gra gravity in three dimensions with gravity in two dimensions. We're describing gravity in three dimensions with gauge theory in two dimensions. And the gauge here gives you the extra information needing somehow the, the description is 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 different yeah yeah so uh yeah i guess we've been talking now for almost 50 minutes I mean, maybe it's a good time to just stop and see you know are there we, any questions do you want yeah, us yeah. to just uh, go on and we can probably talk for four hours about this <laughs> okay, maybe, yeah or, or maybe i should just say two minutes about what we added to this picture okay yes yes good. yeah so what we added is that so there okay so so, so you have the go back, going back and forth between dimensions so that's one thing uh, uh, but um, one should also say that the gravity that that Malasena dis uh, described uh, also has some extra structure it's what is called supersymmetric uh, and so, so that it has some extra symmetry that, for the moment, has not been been uh, been measured in, in the world as we know it. So it's somehow it's it's still in theoretical physics. One 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 many people still hope that supersymmetry is really part of the fundamental theory describing uh, the world at the fundamental level. But anyhow, so so he he assumed he needed the supersymmetry to make everything work technically. Uh, but then he actually also assumed that there was a maximal amount of symmetry, of supersymmetry. So, so our starting point was that, okay, can we describe uh, gravity, a supersymmetric uh, gravity, but with a minimal amount of symmetry? Uh, and that's a well-defined sort of, uh, I mean, theoretical physics problem that you can formulate in some mathematical terms. Uh, and in some sense, we tested uh, this duality for this situation and it worked that well, you could say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Katarina and Jamie, should we go on okay. or do you think there are questions? Um, yeah, let me check uh, and ask people. Uh, I know that Tristan already answered a few questions in the chat. Thank you for that, Tristan. Wonderful um, description. Uh, yeah, uh, please, if you have any questions, raise your hands or flash the microphone um, to let us know that you have a question. Uh, if not, I'll ask my very dumb question. <laughs> and I, if, if that's okay. I, yeah. I don't know, I'm not a physicist at all. Um, I did some physics training at some point. But, um, so when I think of I mean, because of um, the holographic principle um, that that um, was referred to 
or I refer to. When I think of holographic is that, um, as far as I know, in each picture, basically, you have a very simplified description of the whole picture, basically, right? Is that is that correct? Like in a regular holograph, like hologram. So with the soup, you know, with the can and the soup description, you have basically, um, uh, not is it an outer layer basically that has let's say you would only have the surface of a brain information but with that information you could basically reconstruct the whole brain or whole organism just based on the surface information is that the the correct way to see it yeah and um, so you added now basically that you don't just have as you said, like all the ingredients, but also the recipe, like how to come up with this exact universe model and not just some universe model with the same ingredient. Is that, is that correct? Well, well I, think, I think maybe in this analogy, the, on the surface of the soup can, you're told that in the soup there's, I don't know, water and carrots and peas and chicken and I don't know what, 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 you, <laughs> yeah. what kind of soup you want to have inside the can. But anyways, you're told that there's some list of ingredients but what you're not told is how <clears throat> how you're supposed to take those ingredients and reconstruct the soup. And of course, in this case, we're cooking uh, something that we've never cooked before, so we don't even know what the tech, what kind of uh, techniques you're allowed to use. Maybe you're supposed to bury it six feet underground and drive over it three times with a car or something like that. I mean, who knows? So somehow, I think the the point of uh, or one of the sort of contributions of our work is to say. This is exactly how you take these ingredients and recombine them in order to get uh, gravity out on the other side. So we, yeah. we give in some sense a recipe for where, where gravity should come from. Yeah. So maybe we can, yeah, sorry, Robert. Well, it's, it, yeah, so it, it's a precise recipe, but it's also, uh, I mean, it's where it's actually several, I mean, the scope it, it gives, because the first model, this uh, max symmetric model is gravity in a very, uh, sort of symmetric landscape, so to speak. Uh, and so we somehow also extended the scope to describe less symmetric landscapes, if you want. But, but maybe one could just uh, uh, say a little something on, you know, what, what, is this, what is this soup? So, I mean, we're, what we're trying to do is uh, describe, you know, how you get gravity out of some alternative description. And what we mean by that is basically that we want to be able to reproduce uh, solutions of Einstein's theory from some um, alternate quantum system. And what are solutions to Einstein's theory? Well, that's as we talked about before, that's really geometries. So that's solutions correspond to different shapes. You know, even if there's space time and that's diff difficult to imagine, you, you can just imagine, you know, e either it's a sphere, for instance, it's a balloon-like shape, or if it's a, a saddle-like shape, or if it's just flat shape yeah. or, or something else. And what we're trying to do is really show how this shape is emerging from another setting. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I, exactly. I like to have this, this idea of this children's uh, drawings that kids have when they have just a lot of dots and they have some instructions for how to draw lines between the dots. And, you know, once you complete the whole thing, 
you see that, oh, this is a duck or, or something like that. And that's kind of how this picture, you know, it's emerging from some, some other set of rules. And that's the kind of emergence of yeah. gravity that we're looking for. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. And really, so the way to think about this maximal supersymmetry that Moldasein originally considered, that's like a sphere. It's the perfect homogeneous. That... But then you wonder, I mean, can we describe, I mean, more general shapes that are not perfectly symmetric and so forth? So, and, and, and people expected, certainly expected this to be true, but we made it precise. We really, in some sense, mathematically proved that that yes, I mean, as Daniel said, you can connect the dots and get any shape, more or less. And that uh, you also have these shapes in a vacuum state, and that would basically explain the dark, um, the dark energy um, that explains then the expansion of the universe. Is that also correct, or right? understanding so um, in the fact you also have this geometric shape yes right? so, so i think i think it's a it's it's a stretch to say that it explains uh, dark energy yeah, it's, maybe, it, maybe, it's maybe a big stretch a, briefly like so, so what is dark energy so i mean we have so we have this universe and you know let's just assume that the universe is you know like a balloon and it's just the surface of the balloon and we have like each cluster of galaxy is like a little coin that we glue onto the surface of the balloon. And then we're just, you know, the balloon is, is blown up. And so you get each little uh, coin is, is, of course, hold to held together, right? It's not, it's not becoming bigger, but the distance between the coins is growing. And, and that's like our universe, the space time becomes larger, you know, each galaxy is held together by gravity, but the distance between galaxies or galaxy clusters is growing. And, and until recently, I mean, I gave courses on Einstein's theory uh, several years ago, and then we were always explaining to students that we don't really know, you know if, if there is sufficient amount of matter in the universe, then eventually the expansion will slow down and maybe it will even contract and we will have some kind of big crunch. We wouldn't know. But I mean, now we do know that this will most likely not happen because the universe actually started accelerating. And so roughly around, you know, two thirds or something of the age of the universe, something caused the expansion to, you know, speed up. So something is counteracting the pull of gravity and is causing the uh, expansion of the universe to accelerate. And, and that something is what we call dark energy. And we don't really know what that is. But one, uh, you know, thing that we usually say is that some somehow an energy, a vacuum energy, a fluctuation in the vacuum is causing this, although we don't really know how that works. Yeah. So one should maybe also say that, so this one way to think about it is that originally we described uh, the theory, Einstein theory of gravity, as you would start with a flat space, and then once you put some matter inside, like this bowling ball, uh, it will curve space around it. So you would, it's, it sounds that you would need matter to curve space. But then, the, I mean, uh, Einstein later discovered he—that's what he called his biggest mistake ever, by the way—but <laughs> that that there is 
that even if there is no matter in space, maybe uh, you, the universe is somehow hom homogeneously curved anyway by uh, by and but but the same way for I mean at all places and that this this is the dark energy it's playing the role of the matter which goes through, all the way through space right yeah so I mean I think yeah so we, we it's not the case that we are really describing what dark matter what dark energy is but certainly as you have a theory that can you know describe how gravity emerges you can certainly start asking, you know, more and more complicated questions. And uh, yeah, yeah. And if I could ask a quick question, please. Um, yeah, go ahead. So there's, there's a lot of information you've given me. So my head's all, all spinning. So please <laughs> correct me if I if I'm misinterpreting uh, what you've said. Okay. But when you describe like black holes, and you described as well that you're not trying to describe a how would you put it, like a two-dimensional model and then making an, a three-dimensional model from the two-dimensional. You're not coming from that direction. You're more theorizing, essentially, of a 3D model that we're, we don't really understand yet, but you're saying that this 3D model could explain our 2D universe that we're currently living in. And I know, yeah, is, that, is that kind of correct, what you're saying? Um, so, uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not, uh, it's not entirely correct. I mean, mm -hmm. um, so I, I would say that at the moment we, you know, what we, as far as we know, we live in a four dimensional universe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but there, that, that's not, I mean, there are several ways in which you could imagine having uh, more dimensions. Uh, but one is, is you could in principle have a situation where, you know, there are more dimensions that we're not seeing, but they are very small. Um, so you could imagine, you know, having a, a water hose and you have a little insect like an ant walking on the water hose. Now, if you're looking at this water hose from a distance, you would just see that this is a one dimensional line. But if you're a little ant, you could walk around the water hose, so the ant would know that this is really a two-dimensional uh, situation and not the one-dimensional situation. So the ant would need to specify two directions to meet with another ant, right? And, and, and so this is something we don't really know. In principle, it could happen that, uh, you know, if you just, you would just be more sufficiently small, there could in principle be extra dimensions that we are not seeing. <clears throat> Right, right. And so, but on uh, the other uh, hand, you, you could also have a situation where the extra dimensions are large and we are somehow confined uh, in a four dimensional slice in a bigger universe. And uh, we, we just cannot leave this slice. And so we're not seeing them. So th these are basically both of these concepts actually uh, occur in this, in this Maldacena. Uh, theory that we are discussing. Um, so I'm not entirely sure which of these uh, you were asking about. I just wanted but, to. Yeah, yeah, maybe I can add something. So I, if maybe if I understand the question, I think the way I, I think what is challenging is to, to to 
to, to look around. I mean, when you, I guess what you're trying to do is to look around us. We see the world. There is gravity. How is it described by this gauge theory this, in this Maldacena frame, framework? And that's rather tricky to, to, to explain. So maybe it's even better to think of a black hole. So, so, and then the goal is really to describe what's going on inside the horizon. So it's like you have these, you've probably seen these amazing pictures of black holes, like a black disk. Uh, and, and then, and we know that there should be a way to describe what's going on inside. And what's going on inside is really going on in, in four-dimensional space-time, I mean, three-dimensional space. That's what, I mean, there are things going on inside, we believe. But we cannot probe that from the outside. So what, basically in this framework, one tries to understand what's going on inside the black hole only by using a theory which, which basically lives on the boundary, on this horizon, like just before you, you, you go through the horizon. A theory which really just using instructions, as, as, as Tristan said, in terms of the, the surface. So the, this is, I think that's the easiest way to visualize the difference between the, the dimensions. Yeah. But maybe maybe one thing we should be, I mean, I don't know if it's obvious, but I mean, Robert was before talking about these symmetries and that we're looking at theories with a lot of symmetries. So uh, at the moment, the work we have done is not really, uh, you know, explaining anything about the world that we're seeing around us, at least not uh, as far as we know. We yeah. are really looking at this problem, which is an important problem that we want to understand. And then we are looking at it in sort of, if you want, it's a toy model. It's a model with more symmetries than what we expect to see uh, around us. So, I mean, we, we have very good evidence that there is a supermassive black hole at the center of our Milky Way. And we are not really, you know, attempting to describe that black hole. We are, we are saying that, you know, black holes exist in uh, Einstein's theory, any gravitational theory could have black holes. And we are trying to address this question of the emergence of gravity in this simplified toy model that we are looking at. Yeah, it's like this joke of physicists trying to describe a cow with a sphere, right? Yeah, exactly. A spherical cow. Yes. <laughs> so to a first approximation, a cow is just a sphere. Yes. So that's our approximation, basically. But or it's slightly better because it's not even a sphere; it's something less symmetrical than a sphere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, uh, one last uh, question for you here: As um, can you please explain a little bit what um, because it sounds quite mind-bending, but what are antiparticles, and are they like very important to um your your kind of quest here to to kind of look at what you're working on because it sounds to me that you're working on a kind of unified theory right quite where einstein's theory can connect with the uh, was it general quantum theory is that right yes right so yeah. so when you're i mean according to uh, the way we understand uh, the laws of, of physics uh, the particles that we see around us uh, the way we understand them in, in quantum theory is in terms of describing basically you know, roughly their symmetries. So we, we can talk about what kind of symmetries they have. And um, it's a little bit hard to visualize, but um, electrons and photons and so on, they have different types of symmetries. And when we try to classify all particles, 
we see that you know we it's it's very natural that you also have sort of you know opposite to each particle there is like an anti version that has a negative mass and if you would put them together they would just annihilate each other Daniel, so maybe i should negative energy maybe i should add i mean this is a beautiful instance of of the this interaction between mathematics and physics because basically what happened was that dirac wrote down the equation for for example for the electron uh, and and so the equation i mean he looked at it and he tried to solve it and 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 one solution was obviously the electron because the, the, the equation was made to describe the electron. But then he said, hold on, there's another solution. Every time I have a solution, I have another solution. Who's this guy? Uh, and that happened to be the antiparticle, which was later discovered. Yeah, exactly. And, and somehow it, it seems that, you know, in the very early universe, you would, you would uh, some, some kind of, something happened that caused that somehow we have you know, uh, basically an abundance of, of particles and not antiparticles today. So we have some kind of breaking of the symmetry between particles and antiparticles have happened, but uh, antiparticles are still created, you know, in, in, in particle accelerators, when you, when you smash particles into each other, you can have creation of antiparticles. And as we mentioned before, you, you can have this situation where like in vacuum, it's allowed for particles and antiparticles to spontaneously be created and disintegrated um, in very small uh, time frames. Okay, thank you very much. That's that's fascinating. And um, okay, uh, you can continue. So may, may, sorry, maybe I, I just remember something. Maybe I can just uh, briefly add that as well. There is this there is this book by uh, what's his name that wrote. Uh, um, Help me out, the Mona Lisa story. Um, anyway, don't Robert Robert Langdon is this? Uh, oh, is, oh, uh, I know. Who he Dan, is. Dan Brown. Yeah, 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 Brown. yeah, yeah. He wrote <laughs> yeah. this book about uh, some physicist discovering uh, a way to contain antiparticles in really? some cylinders, really? and some some people stole it and it would create a bomb or something. So. So, so that's that's not really. Uh... But but I guess Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it is something of a mystery why that's what you were trying to explain that why the, we see so much matter in the universe, but not so much antimatter, right? Right, exactly. So, and I think and... That, that's 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 like we had this theory of quantum gravity, some more fundamental theory in the early universe, but something caused this kind of breaking of the symmetry, and we don't really know. Yeah, and what... and, and it's also I'm somehow illustrating this procedure we have. Mm -hmm of doing theoretical physics that that we really I mean ideally we would write, like to describe the world around us like the cow on, on the on, on the grass that I was mentioning ideally our theories should describe everything fundamentally all the way up to the cow and even further I guess uh, but there's no way we can do that because it's just too complicated so what what you do in theoretical physics is that you look at these toy models which are simplified symmetrical uh, situations and and, and 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 in such a situation typically you would have as much matter as antimatter and then the next step once you understand that is to explain why symmetry is broken so why the world is more complicated and but that's the next step which is very challenging yeah yeah that even brings up more questions, but uh, please continue <laughs> with your talk. Thank you. Uh, I mean, one one thing that it might be interesting is that I mean, at the moment now we are talking, and it sounds we are 
like we are very synchronized and so on. But I mean, in reality, when we talk, I mean, it's quite fascinating if you would like physicists and mathematicians that very often there is this really interesting language barrier that maybe the, you know, both are using mathematics, but in different ways. So a lot of the times mm. when we are, when we, you know, started this collaboration and so on, it, it's a lot also just translating, like, look, yeah. I have this True. statement in physics yeah. and discussing with Robert and Tristan, they're like, oh, yeah. you know, in mathematics, we have this. And then suddenly yeah. you're realizing that you're talking about the same thing in different ways. And, yeah. and just that realization alone can be yeah. a really interesting yeah. discussion. I mean, there is this amazing story. I mean, we mentioned gauge theories, which is this, this really the language to describe the electromagnetic field and all the forces except gravity. But that was discovered independently, actually first, I guess, all, well, at the same time in mathematics and then in physics. And the fun, funny thing is that, so in mathematics was Chern and, and physics was Yang and Mills. And the story, I think, is that Chern and Yang would even have lunch together once in a while, I think, but they never <laughs> realized that they were talking about the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, it's amazing. That's so interesting. That's um, did you, uh, by any chance, read about um, uh, Enrico Rinaldi's work about using quantum computing to simulate black holes mm. uh, and deep yeah, learning? You know, we had him as guest speaker here. The paper was published like in February this year. Are you, you're not talking about the, there is a woman in the US doing simulations like this in her lab. That's not who you're talking about. I don't remember her name. Um, no, this is in Japan at the uh -huh. recent, uh, but uh -huh. Uh -huh. I know. But yeah, anyways, I, I was just interested how you think, you know, because he also has a holographic setup um, yeah, yeah, okay. So I think, um, so, well, I, I guess it's Daniel mentioned that, I mean, once you have system, uh, you can, I mean, you can try to make this duality, I mean, very general and say, maybe for quite general quantum systems, when we describe them, and we put more and more particles together, maybe some geometry emerges. So I guess that I know what you're talking about is that maybe you can even describe a black hole, I mean, some something looking like a black hole in a lab using an appropriate quantum system, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's a model universe. Uh, I can I can share in the chat the, the paper. It's a very simple form of a universe model. Right. Yeah. I, but that seems I mean, I guess that's why I mean, the way science proceeds, again, is that you want to simplify, you want to describe a complicated, you try some, some characteristics i mean you, you you come up with a toy model which has some some of the characteristics of this model of this phenomenon you're trying to describe and you're hoping to to understand your toy model first so that makes sense i i think I, i'm sure people are are are, are trying to do this at home yeah <laughs> i mean maybe kitchen. just to add briefly to this i i don't know i also don't know exactly the the paper but i mean there is this general uh, stories surrounding black holes involving like information loss and so on. So, you know, people have uh, debated, you know, what happens when you throw in a bike into a black hole, you know, is the information about this bicycle lost? And, you know, according to the, the laws of uh, physics and information theory, we wouldn't expect that information would be lost. And 
there was this famous bet hawking made a bet yeah. someone that you know <clears throat> information is lost and i guess it was suskin right and um so so there's this question you know, in, in hawking radiation for instance is there a way of doing what Tristan was saying, you know, reproducing the, the soup yeah. and so on. Is the information lost or is it somehow there? And, and this story has developed a lot and people are trying to understand this from the quantum information uh, point of view and so on. So I don't know if that's... And, and I guess, related. I mean, some, to some extent, I guess that Hawking eventually uh, admitted that I mean, the information is not lost because of this gauge gravity yeah, duality. Exa right? Exactly. Because yeah. because because we have this dual description using a gauge theory, nothing is lost. I mean, even inside the horizon, things are going on, but we can describe it from the outside using gauge theory. Yeah. So in yeah. some sense, I guess the, the paradox was resolved. But then, I mean, people are looking at much finer questions like how would we ever reconstruct the, I mean, even if we know that in principle there is a dual theory, gravity, I mean, or, I mean, how can we actually use it to, to, to reconstruct, uh, reconstruct the information? I mean, that's yeah. an extremely deep question. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I was looking back at it. Um, so it doesn't really matter, but it, he tried to, um, create a useful quantum computing and deep learning model to study dynamics of matrix uh, quantum mechanics. Mm, I posted mm. it in the chat. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll have a look. I, th I, I, I remember seeing this paper, I think, at some point. But uh, yes, I guess one, I mean, the one difference between, maybe that's worth pointing out. So, so if I remember that paper, I don't have it in front of me. But that the point is that once you write down some quantum system, you can try to simulate it with a computer, basically. Uh, but and but what we did, which is different, is that we instead of using computers to simulate a system, uh, which you could basically do as well, we actually just used so, I mean mathematics to 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 instead of doing the experiment on a computer we are, you can actually use mathematics to see what the end result will be so yeah it's interesting it's interesting <laughs> if you all come up with similar results or um or very different ones it's a different it should be the same but uh, well yeah, yeah i'm sure it's related model is, right but um and um i have a question that is probably a little bit unrelated but so based on your model, can you um, make assumptions on if the universe is deterministic or not? Because I know that Einstein had also a quite a fixed idea about that. So um, is there, based on your model or calculations, what is so with the ingredients and the can? <laughs> Um, hmm. And the soup can like is the um, is no. The I think outcome? yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. I I would say that no. We we don't have anything to add because we really use the language of quantum theory to describe um, uh, gravity and and quantum theory in some sense uh, is not deterministic, even if people debate over that. But we don't. I mean. I wouldn't say that we add anything. We just say that we can use quantum mechanics in some sense to do this. But 
I guess that's a completely different discussion. I would say, what do you think, Daniel and Tristan? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, the, the whole point of, you know, this quantum gravity question and what we are doing is that we are saying that, you know, there is a way to describe gravity using a quantum system, but it, it's, a, it's basically looking at an you know, ordinary quantum system uh, in a different dimension that is containing information about gravity, but we're not really changing anything about quantum theory itself. Okay, great. Yeah, mm -hmm. makes me. Okay, yeah, Tristan, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was just going to. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what Daniel and Robert said. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're I don't think we're trying to update quantum theory. <laughs> so, 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 so I mean, coming back to my life story, that's why I switched to philo from philosophy and physics. These questions are too hard. These about determinism, <laughs> determinism and stuff. It's just too hard. Well, yeah. We actually had the time to film Max Planck here on Friday. He uh -huh. was at the Maximo Entangled uh, Inner Proton, uh -huh. and he did experiments about that and uh, he says that uh, based on his experiment results it's not deterministic which made me really happy okay <laughs> okay. Interesting. okay okay good to hear it settled then good it's settled i okay. agree <laughs> then we don't have to discuss that ever again i'm pleased <laughs> yes i can share the face it was very it made me very happy that's why i invited him basically <laughs> anyway if anyone else has questions uh dr shah Yes, I have a question and thank you so much. I was a little bit late, but for sure I will listen to the reply. My question is about the beta deformation, which you mentioned about that it just happened uh, when the actually fractional, you just explained about the power of the slatter determinant. And uh, when it's happened, it was a negative and fractional power. So my question, is that the same as microstate in a black hole? Because microstates happen when the, uh, when the gravity is weak, or at least it happened in a situation when we have a weak gravity. Uh, would you please explain a little bit more about beta deformation? Okay, I, mean, I could say something. So this is very technical. So so you have you so yeah. So I can only say this in a framework for specialists, I guess. But I think the way to think about it is that what you're talking about is that we write down a, a very specific quantum state. Uh, so that's the recipe that Tristan mentioned, and this very specific quantum state, as you say, technically described by a negative fractional power of 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 a more familiar object, which is called a Slater determinant. So then one way, so why this negative fractional power? And the answer is actually in some sense very simple. So this is the, the natural which respects all the symmetries of the theory, like uh, technically conformal symmetry and supersymmetry. So, so it's just an, uh, uh, the most the simplest thing you can write down which respects the symmetries. And then how to interpret that in terms of, of microstates? Uh, I don't know, actually, that's an open question, I would say. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I don't think we, we really understand. <clears throat> I mean, one can say maybe that, so we have this prescription, or as Robert said, so we have this quant specific state, 
that we describe mathematically in terms of this determinant. And using that, we can show how this, this gravitational uh, solution emerges. And then, of course, you can ask the question, you know, what kind of physical, is there some kind of interpretation of the state itself in terms of uh, physics? Is there some kind of natural way of describing what kind of particles it represents? And uh, I, I guess that's something that we're hoping to, you know, come back to. But uh, at the moment, we don't really know. We, we think it's related to uh, something called uh, giant gravitons. Uh, but uh, we didn't yeah. really go into that in, in detail in the paper. But uh, what we have now is sort of a first prescription for how to do this, and there are many questions one can one can uh, pursue in, in terms of getting more and more details uh, as to yeah. what what this means. Yeah, yeah. So it's not in a coherent state, right? Well, it, some oh, it is in some sense. So so okay. So, so this will get technical, but. So I guess maybe that's even Daniel and Tristan in the first version of the paper on 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 archives. I mean, there is a discussion about still a discussion, right? About yes, the, yes, that, right? that is so true. that's a place if you want to have a look technically. Yes. in the first version uh, on the archives, because basically, I mean, there is a connection to coherent states. So basically, it's just it. There is this remarkable phenomenon that because of this negative power. Uh, what happens is that, um, I mean, when you form the state, it's like a state of uh, n dual giant gravitons, technically, like you can think of this like the, the gravitons of, of space-time. But then, when because of this negative sign, it I, I'm, uh, the, the state will be localized at specific regions of space. Uh, and these will be some brains from the point of view of, of, uh, of string theory. So there is some, they are dual to the original uh, brains somehow. So, so you can think of it as a coherent states or state of, of, uh, of supergravity brains, technically. Yeah, I got the answer. It says supergravity. So yeah. that was the answer. Uh, I have a question. Um, just speaking of um, information and information theory, what what does a physicist mean by uh, information? I mean, how do, how do you quantify information? What, what is a unit of information? <laughs> Good question. I'm, I'm mm. not sure I, I want to try to answer that. Do you have some good answer, Tristan or Robert? Uh, one, one bit. <laughs> one yeah. bit. One so bit. It's, yeah. it's well, well, it's yeah, it's it's an extremely general question. But uh, I mean, in, in some sense, I mean, very in popular terms, I mean, it's yeah, it's this the sort of the minimal ingredients of the recipe somehow. That's the bits of information. I mean, the the point of of quantum information theory, I guess, is to to sort of go away from having just you know zero or one turned on or off. You can you can use sort of the spin of a particle, and then you can have more complicated situations. So that that takes you into quantum information theory. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I'm not. I'm not sure we are really 
qualified to discuss that. Yeah, no, it's the but it's the sort of the simplest ingredients in a description that would be the fundamental units of of, of information. And in like, and in quantum theory, it could be like as you say, spin spin directions. Okay, thank you. I have a question that kind of um, steers us a little bit away, uh, slightly, but let's see if it's relevant enough. Um, were you working on this quantum gravity idea, right? Um, you are kind of unifying Einstein with the, the quantum, like you said. Um, and you mentioned the four different forces of the universe, at least four that we can kind of talk about just now. Do you actually suspect there is like larger laws at play that are like encompassing all of these in some kind of larger way? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, one can say certainly we are, you know, throughout the, the history of development of, of, you know, the theoretical physics, uh, the laws of nature as we know them, we have seen several situations where we have, you know, unification. So, I mean, one of these I, I mentioned before, space and time into space-time. And then we have this famous um, example of, of Maxwell's equations that, you know, previously before Maxwell, people thought that electricity and magnetism were, you know, two separate phenomenon, phenomena. And then Maxwell showed that, in fact, you know, the, the electricity and magnetism are just two sides of the same coin, which is electromagnetism. So it's just one force one phenomenon and in, in what is exactly what we see that you know today we seem to have gravity and we seem to have all these different forces and they have very different strengths but as we sort of uh, wind the, the tape backwards uh, there are uh, unifications happening so the strength of the forces they become closer and closer so we talk about um, unification uh, of electromagnetism and the weak force. So that's called the electroweak force. And that was awarded the Nobel Prize. And that's where these forces sort of unify into one force, if you want. And that's described by a quantum theory called electroweak theory. And so people always expected that, you know, you can keep doing that and go further and further back in time or to higher and higher energy scales and the forces would sort of unify. Yeah, um, and, and also, especially if the world is supersymmetric, then it works perfectly well. It's just like on the spot. I mean, yeah. it's... And yeah. so this is a beautiful idea, and, and it's, it's one that we don't really know exactly how it's realized, but certainly there is this idea that, you know, the very early universe is described by a much more symmetric theory where you more or less have sort of one force or it's all described in the same framework and, and then somehow something happened that caused these phase transitions the universe started expanding it started cooling down and the yeah. forces separated from each other and, and then we end up in the state where we are today where we have these different forces yeah. Another, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that just maybe one could add i mean uh one can also, I mean, this gauge gravity duality, at least in my, the way I think about it, it, it gives some sort of unification because it really says that gravity is not so different after all. Also, gravity is described by a 
by a gauge theory. So you could say that all the forces are unified in this picture by one a gauge theory, even though you need different gauge theories. That's the non-unification yeah. part. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. So like the, the idea that um, as the universe was growing and expanding, like the laws that created it are like splintering off and we're discovering the splinters. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's, that's terrible. It's, I mean, the way I mean, I have this way uh, somehow. Uh, it's a bit like one. I mean, so this is related to this famous antro uh, anthropic principle. But the, you could also somehow maybe the reason that we shouldn't be too surprised that we live in a in a world where, where the forces look different because if they didn't, there wouldn't be any intelligent life to observe it somehow. We, I mean, we came into the into the game at the right right time. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to to develop uh, capacity to understand the universe. Yeah, it's good that the symmetry was broken, right? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, we, we the universe would be too boring. Intelligent life, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it Carl Sagan? And I'm, I'm going to misquote him terribly. I'm sure right now, but he said he said something like, "Um." consciousness was the university's way of observing itself or something like that maybe it was him it's a beautiful idea i yeah, think yeah, i, I yeah. love that i mean i must say this is one of the reasons i got interested in science i this this kind of idea i think i i heard about it when i was a teenager I, it's so beautiful yeah. i mean mm. yeah the universe is kind of narcissistic you know it's very <laughs> Yeah. We're just the mirror that reflects it. And that, I, I did yeah. love that image. That's why I, when you said that, that's why it resonated very strongly there. Yeah. And, mm. and so one other quick question, please. And it was about what you were talking about earlier on. Um, when you were talking about uh, objects and gravity, you were talking about the moon and you, know, you gave a, a quick, to, to illustrate a point, you were talking about the moon and the gravity of, of being close to the earth and things, right? When you mentioned about um, objects, uh, as in you drop like a, a stone into a, a pond, it causes ripples, yeah? And yep. you said mm -hmm. that the, the ripples would be like the, the gravity or yep. the effect gravity yep. has. Yep. Um, just to check for in my head here, but the ripples, so obviously in your analogy, water, as you know an object of its own and we get a much better idea of how ripples work in there but what is the in this analogy what is the water in this analogy is, is that is that the other gravitational bodies that you know have these forces is, is the force between other bodies well so, uh, so so i mean the water is is space time itself yes so that that's the backdrop where everything happening that and that's that's hard to imagine but i mean um it, it's like we were all okay so there's this book called but... flatland you heard about yeah. this book uh so there's a book about uh, two-dimensional people living just on a flat uh surface and you know they all they know is this two-dimensional world and then you know someone can come if someone lives in a three-dimensional world they come and lift them up and they have no clue what's going on they're just leaving the two-dimensional world they know but imagine if you're living in flatland the waves would be like the you know the flat space the sheet where you're living is starting to crumble the waves are propagating on there yeah but you can also see it visualize it inside space i think it, because that's basically how gravity waves were detected in the ligo experiment so because right because when a wave would come if you would magnify it so you what would what you would see is like space 
the geometry of space being distorted in different directions, right? That's the ripple. Yeah, I mean, the LIGO experiment is, is this, you have sort of a V-shaped situation where you have lasers, very accurate lasers, and that are shooting light laser rays, uh, you know, very far, like a kilometer or something in each direction. And then, you know, this, is, this was set up many years ago. It was just waiting for gravitational waves to hit. And, and, and you know, it was only a few years ago when they had the first detection. And, and what happens is, as Robert is saying, the laser, you know, is detecting that in one direction, space is contracting. And in the other direction, space is expanding. And, and so that's what the wave is. It's a huge wave that is just passing through the Earth. And it's contracting and expanding in different directions. Yeah. And, yeah. and it was really detecting the merger of two black holes. You know, far away in the universe, two black holes are, are merging and rotating around each other. And that creates very strong ripples in space-time. And those were detected by the LIGO experiment. So in some sense, it's a bit like, like if you would be if there would be an earthquake, right? In where you would stand, you would see the world shaking, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's like a gravitational wave. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, the, the only way to be, be sure that, you know, it was not an earthquake is that the LIGO experiment is really, yeah. you know, you have two of them yeah, very far right. apart. So the only yeah. way for this to really be yeah. uh, true detection <laughs> is if both of these detectors are sensing yeah. the same thing at the same time. Almost the same time because Almost they measured the, the speed time. of light. <laughs> Almost the same time. And it worked out amazingly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I just have to say that it's, uh, I have to leave now because I have to. Yes, I also have to my leave. Kids. Um, so maybe it's a good time to round yeah, off. Thank yeah. Thank you very much for answering uh, the question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Daniel, Carl, and I'm sorry um, that we didn't get to your questions. Maybe you can ask. Send me a question and then I can maybe forward it. Uh, Tristan, thank you, Daniel, Robert. Um, thank you, coming. it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. We for sure had a great time and um, that you answered our questions so well. And um, especially my dumb questions. <laughs> thank you. It was fun. It was uh, great. Okay, bye everybody. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Okay. Bye. Bye. See you. Yeah. Uh, thank you everyone for coming. I'm sorry if we didn't get to your questions. Um, yeah, please send them to me. I can forward them to the speakers. And. Um, yeah, follow the club if you like um, discussions and guest speaker events like this um, for Science Society. And we will have more uh, rooms like this. We are actually booked until mid-June with almost with every weekday having at least one guest speaker coming. Uh, so tomorrow we will talk about nano-optics and nanospectroscopy with Lukas Gilmeyer about his nanospacer work. Um, then on Thursday we'll have Dr. Allahan talking about disease-specific gene signatures, about her um, Parkinson research. Then on Friday we'll have Dr. Starwood of, uh, from IBM in Switzerland. Uh, talking about new morphic computing and new and new ne neural network design, and um, yeah, next week we'll have um, Dr. Abel. He's a really 
a big professor in memory and he will talk about this new me mechanisms he discovered for long-term memory uh, storage and improving efficiency of CO2 capture on next Tuesday. So we have a lot of room, so follow the club. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. And uh, oh, Robert is still here. Thank you, Robert. Special thanks. And um, yeah, I hope we'll see you again or hear you again soon. And um, thank you, everyone. Bye.